I'll just let you go. You know who he is. All right. Well, good morning from the land of the kids. All right, if you'll turn with me this morning to John chapter 16. John, the 16th chapter. It's my privilege to bring the word this morning. And we're in a series called World Without End, where we are looking at uh, the end times and, of course, uh, the return of Christ. And here in John chapter 16, starting in verse 1, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that they offer God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Then verse 20, it says, Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And finally, jump to 30, verse 33, sorry, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come and that we can hear your word. Lord, I ask you that you let us take a look in the mirror of your word. Examine ourselves, Lord, and make us look more like you. Father, I ask you that this, this word would get down into our hearts and that it would cause fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in this passage of scripture, we see Jesus encouraging his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, just before his death and his resurrection. Now, I don't know, I read that and I'm like, boy, Jesus was a terrible encourager. You know, I don't know if you thought that. But uh, he's preparing his disciples for the days and the years ahead when the world, including the religious leaders, are going to seek to silence them through the threat of imprisonment and death and even kick them out of churches. And Jesus said, when they do this, they're going to think they're doing God a service and that he himself is on their side. And you know, when I look at the world today and I see the new religion rising up, the religion called wokeness, because it is a religion, you know, it's a religion where they worship society and we see how every person worships themselves and is allowed to define their own truth. We can see once again what Jesus is talking about when he says that when they silence you or imprison you, they are doing God a service. It's their God, but that is exactly what they believe. See, even as so-called churches bow to society, they're on the path of becoming an apostate church. And they're going to find themselves fighting against the very God that they claim to serve. See, the synagogues that they're going to kick you out of may look a little bit different than, than it did in Jesus' day. It may look like the workplace. It may look like the marketplace. It may look like schools, colleges, social media platforms, you know, the entertainment industry. See, anything that goes against their agenda, they're going to try to silence. They're going to shadow ban it. They're going to, they're going to totally erase it and cancel it. 
I mean, you even look at like what Disney is doing. Disney's trying to start the children young. They're trying to indoctrinate them so that they think that this, this religion of wokeness is normal. And then you look at what the entertainment industry is purposely trying to cancel and quiet. And it's amazing what you see. However, what's scary is that the entertainment industry is neither the beginning nor the end of this. It's only the visible part of it. Did you know that financial institutes are grading people on their social agenda scores? They're called ESGs, Environmental Social Governance. That's what they're doing. In America, they call it the CEI, the Corporate Equity Index. If you haven't heard that, the Corporate, corporate Equity Index, that is how America is ranking their institutions and their financial systems, their businesses. See, according to your CEI score, is the score that you get on a stock market. Whether you're a good, a good company to invest in or not depends on that CEI. See, the money that you can borrow as a business and the interest rate that you get depends on your CEI score. If you look at it, it is amazing what they are doing. And financial institutions, they can be uh, fined or hurt if they're not woke enough or following the agenda. Gone are the days that when you invest in a 401k or you're investing in a money market group, are they actually ranking it based on the rate of return that you're getting? They don't care about the rate of return that you get on your money anymore. That's not their highest priority. They're looking to see if you're following the social agendas of the world and they actually will rank people higher even though they may be riskier. They might not give you as much money back, but they're going to rank them higher on the stock market for people to invest in the social agendas that they want you to invest in. And so now it's going to be even harder. Like how do we do business in this world and are they telling us truth? I mean, this is going to affect a lot of different areas, even as a place of business, how well you are, how good of a corporation you are to work for. I don't know about you, but if I look up a, a corporation and I'm like, oh man, they have terrible scores. They, they look bad. I don't know if I want to apply to them. I mean, they look like a horrible place to work for. If they're not woke, they'll actually take hits in that and they'll actually rank them lower. I mean, this is exactly what happened to Bud Light. I mean, you look at Bud Light and they themselves said what? We have a frat boy uh, kind of uh, an image and that we're ranked really low on our corporate equity index. And so we need to do something to really increase that equity index. And so they had to go extreme one way because of how far the other way they were. And thank God it backfired on them. Because anything that you can rein in that, that agenda, we want to raise that score slowly instead of just one big jump, right? But this is what China is doing on a personal level. Your individual credit score is based on your social agendas, who you voted for. It's based on your environmental impact. It's based on whether you follow the government or not. And you can't borrow money unless you're following their agendas. You can't live in certain areas. You can't go to certain schools. You have to have a certain level of credit score in order to do business, to do finance or anything. And that's all based upon 
their government's agenda. I mean, you look at our neighbors to the north, Canada. Do you realize that Canada shut down the bank accounts of people who gave money towards uh, something that was against the government's agenda? They donated towards an agenda that is not uh, approved by the government, and they seized their bank accounts. They froze them. They could not get money in. They could not get money out. And you know what? You have American politicians that are looking at that and salivating. They're saying, oh, I wish we could be like them. I wish that we could go that far, but I think that there would be a rebellion on our hands. And so they don't. But I mean, even in America, what? They threatened to fire you if you didn't take the vaccine. And what was that? That was just what's good for society, right? What's good for society? If you're not following society and you're not doing what's good for society, then we don't want you. We're going to rank you lower. And in fact, you see people out there uh, on the media or uh, on, like on social platforms or doing something on their own private time and all of a sudden it goes viral. And they're like, oh, well, they work for this corporation. That corporation doesn't want the bad publicity to get their equity index down, so they fire you. That's what they're doing right now. I mean, you look at all the firing that's happening for people doing their own, on their own personal time. And now we see, that's all kind of under the radar. But then we see the overt war now in Israel. And we're seeing what they're fighting. And you know, I'm shocked at the world's attitude towards Israel. I shouldn't be, but I really am. I'm just surprised at how much of the world is actually against Israel and against the Jews. I even know some Christians some Christians that are against Israel because they say, no, no, the church has taken the place of Israel. God has abandoned Israel for the church. And it's like, you know what? That, that had merit for a couple centuries until May of 1948. When biblical prophecy was fulfilled, when a nation was born in a day, and now we see Jews in the promised land, in their homeland, thriving, and it took it from a third world nation to a first world nation. I mean, it's amazing how fast they turned Israel around to a first world country. And yet there are people that are against them. It's comes and the Jews. Now that should say something to you because those are the only two people in covenant with God. Now, yes, the Jews are lost without Jesus, just like any other nation, but it's clear God does not deal with them like just any other nation. He has a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it is alive today. The church has a better covenant, but that covenant was first to the Jews before it was ever to us. And so we see the spirit of the Antichrist rising up in the world and gaining traction all throughout the world at different levels. And he's coming against the Jews and the Christians. And the spirit of the Antichrist has been in the world from the beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. And his influence is affecting the world around us. And I think as we see this happening, I want to look at three things out of this passage of scripture that we can uh, look at and responses that we should have knowing that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. What are three responses that we should have when we see this taking place in the world? And the first one is here in verse 20. It says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful. 
The first response that we should have is that we should be grieved. You should be grieved when you look at the world. When you see the world leaving biblical truth, leaving Christ, leaving truth in general, it should grieve you. And Isaiah 53.3, if you look at Isaiah 53.3, I think we have it up on the screen here. It says that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected. What does it mean to be acquainted with grief? It means that grief is an acquaintance, right? It's like that song, hello, darkness, my old friend. All you have to say is, hello, grief, my old friend. We don't think like that anymore. I mean, we don't think Jesus as a man of sorrows. Why don't we think of him as a man of sorrows? Probably because the power of positivity thinking that has infiltrated the church. And if I just think positively, then positive things will come my way. There's, there's a, a measure of truth to that. But if Jesus was a man of sorrows, and Jesus said that a disciple is not greater than his master, then we also will be acquainted with grief. I mean, some people though, some people are like, you know, what it really means is that he was a man of sorrows because of what he suffered on the cross. You know, and we kind of, kind of brush it under the rug. He's a man of sorrows because of the cross. Really? Really? Did you, have you ever read the Bible? I mean, Jesus was born into a morally questionable situation. And in fact, a morally questionable situation that required death. And that stigma kind of could have carried on his entire life. Do you know that he was the only one his age born or alive from Bethlehem? An entire generation was killed off in his hometown, Bethlehem. Entire generation gone. He was the only one of his class. I mean, you look at, at uh, he lost a father. You look at that he lost a close cousin. Look at he was hunted as a criminal, thrown out of churches. He was despised by men, and a close friend betrayed him. But I think even more than that, more than the, the losses in the physical, do you realize that Jesus was born without a sin nature? Jesus went through all of life, not subject to sin. He was born of a woman, but he was the only man since Adam that did not have a sinful nature. And so I think Jesus was grieved, standing on the outside of sin, looking at the world in bondage, looking at them caught up in sin, seeing the effect of sin in every person's life and him being free from it, grieved over that. Mark 5.3 says that Jesus was grieved at the hardness of men's hearts. He was grieved in the spirit also when he saw the spiritual state of men. But what did that grief do? The grief led Jesus to compassion. He had compassion for others. If you look at the context in most places in the Bible where it says that Jesus looked at the congregate or looked at the people, the multitudes, and he had compassion, 
I think you could easily see the grief in that. You could say that Jesus was grieved looking at the multitudes, looking at their suffering, looking at the pain. He was grieved and moved with compassion. He sought to alleviate any suffering that he possibly could. It caused him to move out. Now, brothers and sisters, the death of Jesus on the cross has freed us from that sinful nature. And we should now be on the outside of sin, just like Christ, looking at a sinful world, and it should grieve us just like it grieved Jesus. We should be looking at their bondage. We should be looking at the sin. But far too often, I think, I look at the world through my own sinful nature instead of my redeemed nature. And I look at the world and say, well, I overcame that. How come you can't? Come on, I'll tell you that right now. You're not doing better. I didn't overcome that. I'll just tell you that right now. It was Christ in me. It was his righteousness, not mine. But I think that sometimes we get into that attitude uh, through the sinful lens instead of stepping back and looking at it through the righteousness of Christ Jesus that is now in us. See, grief will lead you to one of two outcomes. You'll either turn inward or you will turn outward. See, when you turn inward, you're responding to the fear and self-preservation to preserve your own righteousness. But when it moves you outward, it's out of the love of Christ. It's out of compassion for others. And when we look at the state of the world and humanity, is it leading us to withdraw from the world? Or is it leading us to move out? When we're out in the workplace, when we're out in the marketplace, when we're out in the world and we see the blatant sin and the atmosphere of sin, do we shriek back and say, I've got to preserve my own righteousness. I can't, I can't, I can't look at that. I can't reach out to those people. Or are you the tip of the spear? Because if Christ's work on the cross can cleanse me of all unrighteousness, he can cleanse them of all unrighteousness. And if I'm in a room and there is sin, I don't have to shriek back because the blood of Jesus can cleanse that room of all unrighteousness. I just have to stand in the place of authority, stand in the place of love and extend mercy to other people. And you can change the atmosphere where you're at. That is what it means to be salt and light. We should be moved with compassion to compel people out of darkness into light. And that starts with grieving over the state of the world. The second response that we should have is that we should have joy. Look at verse 21. It says, a woman when she's in labor has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So we should have joy. Hebrews 1.9, speaking of Jesus, says, Because you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness or the oil of joy. But wait, you just said he was a man of sorrows. How is he a man of sorrows and anointed with joy? That's like an oxymoron, right? Like you can't, they don't go hand in hand. You know, but Hebrews 12.2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, the outward manifestation of joy is not always a direct correlation to the amount of joy that you have. It's not. Because sometimes joy is only expressed through the faithful persistence of putting one foot in front of the other. And, and if you actually look at Hebrews uh, 12, 1, Hebrews 12.1, it tells us that we should run our race with the same endurance as Jesus ran his for the joy that was set before him, he endured. So our endurance should be the same joy that Jesus endured with. And see, the outward expression of joy is directly correlated, I believe, to the weight of the trial that you're currently going through. If your trial and your affliction is light, then you can smile, you can have joy, you can laugh. But I don't think anyone has a view of Jesus on the cross smiling and laughing. I think that his external expressions matched his torturous death. I don't think that he was laughing and smiling. And so sometimes we can laugh, we can smile, but there are other times where that joy and we're under so much weight that all it looks like is the endurance of moving forward, the endurance of staying in the will of God. But I think sometimes there's another reason for my lack of joy expressed and that's simply that I've either forgotten or I've taken my eyes off of that joy. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? What was it? It should be the same joy that's set before you. So what's set before you? What was it? Entering heaven and eternal glory? Was that his joy? Having people surrounded by, by angels worshiping and adoring him? Was that his joy? No. Because he was already there. If that was his joy, why did he ever leave? He left there and humbled himself to come down as a man, Emmanuel, God with us, and died a painful, shameful death for a greater joy than eternity, a greater joy than heaven. So, what was his joy? I believe that Jesus took great joy in revealing God the Father to us. But his ultimate joy was reconciling a sinful man to a righteous and holy God. And when he reconciled them together and made us have right relationship with God, full access to the Father, that's what brought him the greatest joy and that should bring us joy. That's where our joy 
should be found. See, all of heaven rejoices over one person that turns from their sin and turns towards God. All of heaven, or do we say, do we? Or do we say, unless there's 20, no. Unless there's 50, unless there's 100, maybe 1,000, 10,000. How many people does it require you to celebrate to change life? Heaven rejoices with one. Jesus rejoices with one. Are we so focused at the multitudes that we forget about the woman at the well? Jesus was able to reach out to the one and change her life. And it brought him joy to see a changed life. If you have lost your joy, then maybe it's time to get involved in the work again. Get your eyes off of heaven and get your eyes on reconciling a sinful world to a righteous God. We have the same opportunities to reconcile the world to God. Jesus already did the work. We just have to start the conversation. We just have to make the introduction. Jesus will do the rest. Jesus will reveal himself to them. We have to get involved in the work of Jesus, and it will bring us joy. Jesus said in verse 22 that the disciples would have joy when he sees them again. Has Jesus seen you? Has he seen you? God has revealed himself to me in a way that says that he has a personal relationship with me. He knows me inside and out. He knows the number of hairs on my head. He, he speaks to me in such a way that it, it ministers only to me. I mean, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I tell Jordan and Daniel, and they're like, yeah, that's great. You know, it's like, well, that was because it was personal. It, it, meant, it meant a lot to me. I mean, you're just kind of blowing it off, but it meant a lot to me, you know? He sees you. And he speaks to you. And he wants you to take that same joy that he sees you into the world and let the world know he sees you. He sees you right where you're at. And then we extend the mercies of God. See, we should find joy in seeking and saving the lost just as Jesus did. Which leads us to our third point. Our third response is that we should have peace. We should have peace. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. And in verse 33, it says, These things I've spoken to you, cheer, I have over. You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that you would have peace. Well, then why does this seem like it brings more fear and anxiety than it really does peace? I mean, he's a terrible encourager. I mean, you, you're telling me I'm going to go through hard trials. People are going to try to kill me, kicked out of church. So the, you know, society's going to reject me. And it's supposed to bring me peace? How is that possible? Because it's Jesus' peace. Because Jesus said, in me, you will have peace. And he says, abide in me and abide in my peace. He says, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, but I give you peace. A peace that passes all understanding. The world should look at our peace and marvel. 
But when we get our eyes off of Jesus and onto the world, then we step out of our peace. Peace is only found keeping our eyes on him. You know, when Pastor and I were in Israel, uh, our tour guide was Major Elliot Chadoff. And he said something that was amazing. One of the pastors, I mean, we were going through Sadat right there next to the Gaza Strip where they had to, to actually build uh, bomb, uh, bomb shelters into the children's playgrounds so that they can get out. And they're like, how do you, how do you deal with all the terror attacks, all the fighting, all the constant threats of violence? How do you not have PTSD? And he was like, oh, well, all, all of that had been prophesied. It's been prophesied. It's been foreseen. He's like, I don't really worry about things that have been foreseen and prophesied. He said, the things that really scare me are the ones that no one saw coming. The ones that no one ever foretold us about, no one ever prophesied about, those are the instances that really scare me. Like, well, why is that? Well, because when God prophesies, he prophesies from the end to the beginning. So you know the end when he prophesies it. He says, yes, trials and tribulations are gonna come your way, but don't worry, I've overcome them. You will have victory on the other side. You will have blessing on the other side. This is what's gonna happen on the other side. You're gonna have hope, a future. And so you can look at that and say, yes, I know what the end is from the beginning and I have hope in the midst of this because God saw it coming. He warned me about it. So I can see the end. I can endure to the end. It's the things that aren't foreseen that you're like, I, how, how is this going to end? What's going to come about this? What is God going to do on the other side? Is there a purpose to this trial? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying that in this life, you will have trials and tribulations. And it should bring us peace right now. But there is joy coming tomorrow. There is joy in the morning. See, I don't have to beat this myself. He's already overcome it. All I have to do is find the promise in his word because he's given us a promise. And that promise will propel you into hope, faith, and peace, even in the midst of the trial. And you can stand there with the peace, even as the whole world is on fire. Because you know that he is turning all things for the good of those that love him. But the world cannot receive Jesus. Jesus said that those who obey his teachings will see him and receive him. The world cannot receive the comforter because they have not known God and they have not known Jesus. Jesus said that he has given us his peace. His peace only comes when we first obey his teachings and we obey him. Then when we obey him, he will see us. He will see you. He'll reveal himself to you. As you are walking in his ways, he will show up and encourage you. And he will give you the hope to keep going, the endurance to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And while it may initially bring us some anxiety to hear that tribulations are coming our way, when they happen, you can know it was foretold. He saw this. Didn't catch him off guard. Didn't catch him unaware. And if it didn't catch him unaware, then he's in control. And he will do what he said he would do. He will watch out over his word to perform it. And on the other side, there will be blessing. 
We only lose our peace when we take our eyes off of Jesus and say, I have to do it myself. So in closing, I want to encourage you in these last days, in these seasons, they've been foretold. They have been prophesied. It's written right here in this book. It should not be a surprise, even though sometimes it's amazing how dumb the world is, but it shouldn't be a surprise because it's written right here. And when we see these things taking place in the world, you should be grieved. It should grieve you. But the correct response to that grief is to move out in compassion. To step out and reach just one. Just reach out to one. And when you get involved in the work and you reach the one, and you see the power of a changed life. You see that life reconciled to a holy and righteous God. It will bring you joy. It will bring you purpose. It will give you newfound hope. We should be an extension of the love of Christ. Not lost. He said the world is judged already. Jesus said, I don't have to to worry about judging the world. Because they're judged. They will be judged by the things written in the word of God. So I'm not going to judge anyone. I'm going to reach out with mercy. I'm going to reach out and try to reconcile people to God. And that's what we should do. That's what we've been called to do. You have, been, you have entered the kingdom of God, the family of God. And all he asks is for you to extend that family invitation to others. And as we do this, we're going to find joy in the midst of darkness because then you will be anointed with the oil of gladness yourself and you will have the endurance to press forward and endure this time. See, our hearts will be made new and changed and then we will be like all of heaven rejoicing over the one And then we can have all confidence that Jesus has already overcome the world. So all I have to do is abide in him. I just have to rest in him. So this morning, if you're looking at the world and you say, I have fear and anxiety, not necessarily compassion, then we want to pray for you because it's channeling that grief into reaching out with compassion, not shrieking back in fear, if you say, I've lost my joy, well, then maybe it's time to get involved in the work. Say, who, who can I talk to? Who, who can I start witnessing to? Who can I invite into the kingdom of God? Who do I want to see reconciled to God that is not? And if you have not been reconciled to God, if you have not accepted him as your Lord and Savior, we would love to make that introduction. If you need prayer for anything, please come down. These altars are open. You know, just like Jesus was moved with compassion to heal, it's still the same Jesus today. And he's alive and well in us, in you, in the church. If you need prayer for anything, please come down. We want to pray for you. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, that we can hear your word. Lord, I ask you that you would give us the strength and the endurance to be your hands and feet. And Lord, right now as we go out into the world, I ask you that you move upon each person's heart. 
Lord, that they would have the compassion for the world and compassion for others just like you have. Lord, I ask you that you would rise up and show yourself strong on our behalf. Lord, give us the wisdom and encouragement for these end times in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for coming out this morning. We appreciate you. Now, get out there and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Amen. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Just have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide Or From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Shining star upon the highest bar.